Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Well, hey there, friends. Happy New Year to you. New Year, new microphone. You know, I'm thinking it might be time for a new pet. Maybe something less scaly and prehistoric, you know? Something you can pet without losing an arm? Oh, don't be jealous, old pal. Here you go. Want to eat my old mic? There you are, buddy. And that's how you recycle in Texas. Come on in, friend. Welcome to Casa de Blood. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, before you ask me how that quit drinking for New Year's thing is going, I'm happy to report it went just fine. Not a drop till the second. So smoke them if you got them and drink those glasses to the bottom. Because your old buddy Drew Blood has a tale to tell. Two tales, actually. Hello? Hi, sir. Oh, this is season one, episode 15 of Drew Blood. You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and all their other episodes, just visit simplyscarypodcast.com and then click Patreon in the upper menu. You'll get instant access from my friends at Chillin' Tales for Dark Nights. Oh, it's scary. Very, very scary. Oh, thank you for your support. Hello? Hello? Who's there? Bastards. I don't want to say any more, damn it. Oh, okay. They're telling me the True Blood Podcast is accepting submissions. You got a good one? Send it to TrueBloodHorror at gmail.com. If you're accepted, you'll be rocketed into stardom. Relative stardom, anyway. Bye. Someone turn on the lights. I can't see, goddammit. And tonight we're lucky enough to bring you a new author, novelist, short story writer, and fellow Texan, Mario E. Martinez. And he's got a couple of damn good ones for us tonight, folks. The first story is a tale of family customs in which we join a boy and his dad on an uncustomary hunting trip. You never know, friends. Ship mutates these days. My advice? Keep those scopes calibrated. So without further delay, I give you from author Mario E. Martinez, The First Cup. 
There was a deliberate ease to the way his father opened the door that said there was no rush. Silio, it's time to wake up. He expected the sleepy child, not the lanky 14-year-old who'd lain awake in bed since he got home from school earlier that day. Okay, I'll get moving, pops, Celio told his father. His father nodded and left Celio's door open. His heavy boots clomped off into the kitchen where he opened and closed cabinets, collecting the ingredients for his coffee. No matter how it was explained to him, Celio always thought it was weird his father treated the hours before their trips. He treated them like the actual morning, even if it was anything but. His father genuinely slept from afternoon to evening and expected Celio to do the same even if he had to be excused from his last two classes that day. Pops ate breakfast, read his paper, and had a good shit like it was any morning, not the evening. Though his father got after him for letting his drowsiness show before their hunting trips, Celio never really slept. The monte was full of dangers, his father often said, and sleeping people usually found them all. But knowing what was coming, a fresh kill, or his father agitated and scouring the local papers for a month, Celio could only lie in bed with his eyes closed. Keeping quiet and playing along was easiest, Celio knew. Once, when he tried to say he didn't like going on trips with his father, Pop sat him down and gave Celio the hunter speech. Then he brought out the scrapbook. He'd made Celio flip through it. On each page was a photograph of one of their past kills and his father would rattle off statistics, their dimensions, weights, habitat, and territory stats, and finally, how much each ate the year they died. It's about balance, he'd say, never turning from even the goriest photograph. They'll doom us all if we don't keep them in check. They never stop eating, not until we kill them. Sometimes Celio wondered if his dad didn't just like killing things. Maybe he'd always wanted to kill a man, but this was the next best thing. The smell of coffee brewing got Celio moving, and he got dressed with a sneer lingering just millimeters beneath his face because the coffee wasn't even for that moment. It was for after the hunt. To his father, it was a ritual. The scheduled sleep, the drives, and the coffee. If they succeeded, Pops would open his heavy-duty thermos and pour each of them a cup. If not, then Pops waited until they got home and poured it down the sink. We don't deserve it, he'd say. Dressing, Celio wished he could drink some of that coffee to perk up, but one of Pops' rules was to abstain until afterward. They can smell the coffee on your breath for a mile, his father always said. Once Celio finished, he met his father in the garage to load up the camper with gear. In a bid to keep hidden from the neighbors, his father kept the garage door down. He wasn't ashamed, he once explained. Times had changed since Pop was a kid, and people were just more sensitive. They'd misunderstand. It was a relief when Celio found that the freezer where they kept the bait was empty. I got it already, son, his father said, his body halfway inside the cab. You didn't need help? Of course, but my baby boy was still dreaming about what's-her-name, his father joked. It wasn't heavy. You all set? Celio shrugged. I guess I'm ready. Celio wanted to thank Pops for loading the bait, but stopped. 
It might sound like he wasn't fully behind the hunting trips, even if they were a family tradition since way back in the frontier days. It wasn't that. Celio just didn't like holding the bait bag. The cold plastic was odd to touch, and when he got hold of the things inside, Celio could gut a deer in less than three minutes, but simply holding one end of the bait bag revolted him. His father wanted enthusiasm, though, so Celio kept quiet. He was old enough to understand his father didn't want blind obedience. Maybe it was just his way of hiding his nervousness about the trip. The guns, the land, the prey. There were so many variables and all of them added to the danger. Already used the can? Might as well stay home if you didn't. If you go out there, we won't see anything. Celio wore an imp smile. His father returned the same expression. Son, I'll make you sit in your own mess until we come home. That means you'll be smelling it too. Pops imitated Celio's shrug. Hey, as an old man, I'm used to weird smells. The ride was a quiet one. It was partially the errand and partially Celio's age. Celio stared out the window, watching Puente slip slowly away and meld with the dirt ranchettes dotting the West Highway. Farther still, save for the fences and telephone lines, the land seemed untouched. Celio looked at the thick brush land and recalled his father once saying that the wilder the land, the better the hunting. His father drove them to a hunter friend's ranch on the edge of Splitwood, just south of Dodd. Celio had been there a few times before. It was good hilly land, almost made for their kind of hunt. When they got there, his father parked next to a little ranch house, no more than a clapboard room with small windows, a cot, and a sink. After the truck was off, Celio helped his father unload the supplies. From that point on, Celio knew he couldn't avoid handling the bait bag. They had a mile to walk under the full moon rising and there was no way his father could carry the rifles, ammo, the bait bag, and that stupid thermos. Celio got the bottom and his father took the top, which he tied with a rope so he could carry it easier. The way his father had tied the bait bag made it look like a corpse. Even the bottom of the bag felt like it was a person still cool from the freezer. Celio had to remind himself it was a trick his mind trying to make sense of what it couldn't see. Together, they found one of the clearings set up for baiting. Over the years, the trees around had been trimmed to grow with gaps between them big enough for a skilled hunter to shoot through and small enough that animals felt safe within, unaware of the blinds set up yards away. Once they dropped the bait bag, Pops told Celio to get a tight hold of the wrapping. His father slit the bag open with his pocket knife. The breeze snuck into it, opening the flaps and displaying the contents to the bright moon. Celio tried to look away, reminding himself what it was, but he was instantly transfixed by it. What was in the bag was beautiful even in death. Its skin was dark despite being in the freezer for days. The face was full-lipped, the nose flat, matching well with large eyes that stared up unblinking. The body, too, was a wonder. Firm breasts, a slim torso, skin smooth except for the blackened entry wound beneath its ribs. Celio tried to peek between its legs, but his father called for his attention. I lift, you pull, he whispered. 
sliding his hands beneath its armpits. On three, he lifted and Celio pulled the plastic away and balled it up tightly. He gave it to his father, who tucked it under his arm. His father knelt down and unzipped one of the rifle carriers. From it, he took out Celio's rifle and loaded the cartridge before shoving the empty bait bag into the carrier. He took another handful of cartridges and gave them to Celio. His father waited for him to nod in readiness before putting a finger to his lips. Time for silence. His father readied his own rifle, slung it over his shoulder, and put the empty rifle carrier into the other, along with the bait bag. Slinging that onto his free shoulder, he freed his hands for his rifle. After nodding to his son, he moved off to his right. Celio went left, knowing to go 50 paces before changing his trajectory to a nearby blind, one built into a thicket of Husaches and Palo Verdes to mask their scent. Usually, those walks alone scared him. No matter how many ranches or how many nights, Celio always lost himself in the dark until the shadows in the trees held secret monsters stalking him just beyond sight. Yet, he couldn't stop his mind from drifting back to the bait. He had never seen a naked woman outside of magazines swiped from his father. And he thought, in a way, he still hadn't. Celio felt something stirring him, but as soon as he did, his father's lessons came rushing in. Even dead, they were dangerous. They had power, his father told him, and it lingered even after death. Repeating that, Celio tightened his grip on his rifle and marched. As usual, Celio's father beat him to the blind, which was a plain cinder block square built with windows on three sides for a good view of not only the clearing, but the surrounding land. For seats, there were two heavy stumps tall enough for a grown man to sit and aim. They were painful things to sit on for too long, but chairs made noise, and noise was dangerous. The back wall was basically a doorway, and the door itself was made of iron bars spread out enough to aim through and not risk a ricochet. In the corner was a rusted metal bar used to further barricade the door if needed. His father called it the old shit bar because it was only used when everything went wrong. They had never used one, but during the first hunts, his father often told stories of people who had. They hadn't been ready. They hadn't covered their tracks. They hadn't been quiet. Celio hated what came next. Hours of dull silence, of the cold and the dark. Sometimes they'd wait hours, and more than once they'd stayed in a blind until the next morning with only the vulture sniffing at the bait. And sometimes, by the time something did come around, Celio was usually so loopy with boredom that he'd think any shape was his imagination playing with him. This time, though, they hardly had to wait for something to walk into the clearing. Celio had tried to anticipate it, but no matter how many times he saw one, he wasn't sure he'd ever get used to them. Bathed in the light of the full moon above, the shape was impressive. It was shaped like a buck, a big-bodied thing with an antler crown. Even in the semi-dark of the full moon, its fur almost glowed with vitality. But, as was the case with them, it was the mistakes that gave them away. The limbs were too long, the hooves too wide. The antlers had none of the asymmetry so abundant in nature. Yet, of all the flares of variation, 
The clearest signs were the eyes. They were like two gold coins set into their faces. Pop said they knew they could be spotted for their differences, but they didn't care. They thought regular folk were too dumb and too weak to do anything about it. Often, Pop said they'd rule the world if they were smarter. Lucky they're dumb enough to get shot by two mumholes like us, huh? Through his scope, Celio saw that this was one of the really smart ones. It stayed hidden, testing the wind, scanning the clearing, and moving in what it thought were the shadows. There was a tap on Celio's arm. Pulling away from his scope, he saw Pops point to his eyes and nod. He'd seen it too. From there, his father pointed at Celio, then made a pistol with his fingers and fired. Nervous, Celio nodded and positioned himself behind his rifle. It was his shot. His father stuck his hand out for Celio to wait. He made a cross with his fingers and then closed the fist. Line up the shot and wait for the signal. Again, Celio nodded. Lining up the shot was the easy part. The buck was so big, he had plenty of options. It unknowingly faced the blind, and for a second, Celio wondered if the golden eyes found him, but the thing moved into the clearing and showed Celio its broadside. Celio got his crosshairs right behind the buck's shoulder and gave his father a thumbs up. Pops placed a hand lightly on Celio's shoulder and raised two fingers, ready, and let the middle one fall, steady. Celio's finger hovered over the trigger. His breath slowed, but the signal never came. His father picked his hand up again and steadied his own rifle to better look through the scope. At first, Celio thought he just wanted to study the creature and maybe give advice about where to shoot it, but then he moved his rifle out to the right. Celio checked his scope. It hadn't strayed, though now it was close to the bait, sniffing at its dark hair and nudging it with its foreleg. His father took his rifle from the window, placing it on the sill on the right side of the blind, and looked through the scope for a moment. Even in the dark, his father's shoulders shuddered, betraying him. He gave the boy a peace sign. There were two of them. Celio seized with panic. One was fully capable of chasing them down and killing them if they weren't careful. Two could kill them even if they were careful. Face grim, his father put his hand on Celio's shoulder. He held up his finger for him to pay attention. He pointed at the clearing. He then motioned to himself and behind him with his thumb. His grip tightened on Celio's shoulder to show the importance of his instructions. His father held up his hand, telling the boy to wait, and then pressed two fingers to his own lips. He nodded at Celio and waited. Celio nodded back. Even if he didn't like it, he understood. Once his father gave the signal, Celio was to shoot the buck in the clearing while his father took out the other. It was a simple plan with plenty of room for error. If he missed, they'd scatter, chase the sound, and find them. The same if they were spooked. And even if Celio killed the one in the clearing, the second would be enraged. If it got their scent, it would hunt them down until the stars went cold. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. 
If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Celio got the beast in his sights again and took a long, steadying breath. The crosshairs hovered over its heart. Each breath felt like a betrayal, altering his aim bit by bit. Any one of them might send his bullet too high or too low and doom the both of them. When his father tapped his leg, Celio pulled the trigger. There was a ringing in his ear despite his earmuffs. The rifle kicked, but Celio got it back fast enough to see the buck rear up on its hind legs and fall over, kicking the dirt. On the ground, it kicked dumbly, the limbs changing from deer to those of a wolf, then to a man, and finally onto some hybrid of mammalian appendages. It let out a dying gasp, which sounded like some ancient curse. The space between his shot and his father's seemed non-existent, but then his father was manic, yanking the rifle into the blind and stripping off his earmuffs. Doing the same, Celio asked, What's wrong? Pops gave him a panicked look. I missed. Celio's eyes widened and he heard nothing else. Death was coming and it would not be gentle. They'd trained for this, run drills every couple of weeks, but now that the time had come, Celio reverted back to being a simple teenager, scared and vulnerable and unsure. His father had no time to coach him. He thrust his rifle at Celio and attacked the iron door. It was heavy, its hinges rusted by the elements. For a moment, Celio thought the door would shut without protest, but it swung halfway before getting stuck. His father threw his shoulder into the bars twice to finally get it shut. Celio watched his father maneuver the metal bar to barricade the door. The boy managed to keep hold of his rifle and slid down against the wall. He couldn't hear his father telling him to be ready. His heart beat so fast that it muted everything else except for an approaching gallop. As quick as he realized what the noise was, the second beast slammed into the blind's face. Back to the wall, Celio felt the wave of impact rush through him. He scrambled. In his panic, it felt like the blind would collapse from such an impact. When he looked back, a fur-covered arm whipped through one of the windows. Celio was too low for it, but his father was close enough for the claws to snag his hunting jacket, salting the blind with goose down. The swipe knocked his father off balance, but Pops never lost his grip on the bar barricading the door. Seeing his father caught like that cleared Celio's mind, 
Gritting his teeth, the boy chambered a cartridge and threw his back against the door, aiming for the window. Nothing was there to shoot except the dark. His father anticipated his son's confusion and spun Celio into the corner. Before he could say a word, the beast was at the door. Celio realized nothing could prepare him for what stood a few feet away. It had taken on one of the wolfish shapes favored by its kind. Unlike normal wolves, the four legs were thick like human arms and ended with human hands made deadly by three-inch claws. The face had the cheekbones of men, but a half-snout and muzzle. As before, the eyes were like golden discs shining brilliant in the night. That close, Celio understood the danger in them wasn't just their speed, strength, or ferocity. It was their intelligence. It pulled its lips back, and in a half-bark, half-song, it spoke. Abre la puerta, niño. And I'll make it quick. In its glowing eyes, Celio saw pure hatred. It wanted to hurt them. It wanted revenge. Yet once it realized Celio wasn't moving, it clawed at Celio's father and fell to her floor, still maintaining his grip on the old shit bar. Getting nothing, the wolfman grabbed the iron bars and shook them. The hinges squealed and the walls quaked, threatening to bring the blind crashing down on them. Through it all, one strange thing kept Celio focused. Pops cursing. Shoot the motherfucker! Shoot it in the fucking face, son! Celio lifted his rifle and fired. The blast took everything from Celio. Sound, sight, the world was a wall of painted spots. He couldn't even hear his own screams. He tried to chamber another cartridge, but something grabbed his rifle and then a hand rested on his chest to calm him. When the world returned, he saw Pops above him catching his breath. His face glistened with sweat. Behind him, the doorway was empty. When his hearing gradually returned, Celio heard his father repeating, it's all right. It's all right. Are they? Celio tried to ask, but stopped when he saw two motionless feet peeking in from the bottom of the doorway. Nodding, Pops loaded both rifles anyway. He scanned all the windows, and once satisfied there were no more of them, Pops forced the door open. All the shaking loosened the door so much it fell from its hinges as soon as they were beyond it. Right outside the blind was the body. Though in death it had shed its skin, it looked like an accountant in his forties, his mustache and hair graying. Celio's father examined it, finding that Celio had shot it under the jaw, the bullet punching through the back of its skull. Down in the clearing, the first one Celio shot looked like an older woman, her skin wrinkled though her hair was still dark and thick. He'd gotten her just beneath the armpit, hitting her heart with a clean through and through. Seeing they were dead, Celio's father allowed them to put their rifles on safety and sling them over their shoulders. Their walk back to the blind was quiet and Celio could finally breathe again. See son? 
That's the risk with that bait, his father explained. Shapeshifters. Pops, can we just not? Son, he said sternly, I'm trying to teach you something. See, shapeshifters pick wolf skin because they're a lot alike. Wolves can smell their own pack, same as shapeshifters. If you can trap one, you can lure the others. You'll never get the whole group, but still. The only problem is because they've got such strong bonds. Like people? His father snorted. <laughs> like a hundred other mammals, people included. They collected their things. By the time they had gotten back to the truck, it was already daylight, and a curious buzzard circled above. Driving to the clearing, his father groaned. Oh, they'll help move them at the processing plant, but now we've got to haul three. Man, oh man, your mother's gonna have to walk on my back when we get home. Pop stopped the truck just outside the clearing and put it in park. He didn't get out immediately. First things first, he said, and out came the thermos. Cracking it open filled the cab with the warm smell of coffee. He filled the lid with a still steaming cup full, but didn't drink it. Instead, he gave it to Celio. Celio took it. He didn't like the bitter taste, but sipped it anyway. Seeing Celio drink, his father smiled. Enjoy it, son. We've got drills to run when we get home. Celio almost spat the coffee out. Imitating his son, Pop shrugged. You panicked, so we have to practice. But enjoy the first cup. You earned it. You've been listening to The First Cup by Mario E. Martinez. A good reminder to raise your kids right. The next time you leave your ass hanging out, they just might be there to cover it for you. Positive reinforcement, folks. Now, our second story shares the same theme of father and son, only this time, dad fucked up worse than a misplaced shot. From Mario E. Martinez, I give you a whistle in the dark. Something broke in Domingo Halcon the day his son got lost in the Monte. There was no great mystery for the public or himself who was to blame. The boy Polo hadn't wandered off. No one kidnapped him. The boy had been lost in the Monte for six days because Domingo left him there. All he had wanted to do was teach his son a lesson. The boy had been a terror for hours, screaming and demanding all sorts of things. He kicked the back of Domingo's seat like he was stomping a colony of ants and cried like he was on fire. Domingo had told him to stop. His wife, Anna Christina, threatened to spank him right on the highway. Still, the boy carried on, wailing and kicking. That's it, Domingo had said as he pulled the car over. You're getting the belt, young man. He had met eyes with his son through the rearview mirror, and the boy looked terrified. Domingo often thought of that look in his boy's eyes, thinking how monstrous he must have looked to his son. So terrifying was that look, it sent Polo scurrying out of the car. They'd pulled over beside one of the many ranches that lined the highway. The boy ran through the tall grass and reached a barbed wire fence. He climbed over it like a monkey and ran to the brush line, stopping just before going headlong into thorny mesquite and plate cactus. 
The day had been so hot, Domingo remembered, and the heat made him angrier. He walked through the tall grass undoing his belt. He whipped it around like a machete, swatting the grass around him. You get over here this instant, he screamed. He reached the fence, mostly rust and jagged edges, and looked into the boy's eyes. I've had it. You don't respect me. You don't respect your mother. You cry and whine like your prince of the world. But I'll show you, believe you me. You come out of there now. No, Polo had told him, seeing he didn't want to cross the fence. Polo, you get off of that land now, Domingo seethed. You are trespassing, young man. Do you know that? In Texas, little boys can be shot for trespassing. Now get out of there. Polo, he remembered along with the heat and terrified reaction, gave him a smug look, one that told his father that none of his threats or shouts meant a thing. There, Domingo was playing the boys' game, a game he'd played for too long. I won't, Polo said, his squeal equally pathetic and defiant. Really? Domingo told him. Fine. I'll tell you what, little prince. Why don't you stay here then, huh? You like it so goddamn much? Stay. If you get tired of it, the house is 40 miles that way, he said, pointing with the belt still clenched in his hand. See you at supper. He walked away to the car before turning around and seeing that Polo hadn't moved, waved. See you, son, he'd yelled. Once in the car, he had told his worried wife that the next turnaround was in a mile, that they'd only pretend to leave him. It would shock the boy, he'd told her. When Domingo had talked to the reporters, he asked them how he could have known that the turnaround had been closed or that it would take 30 minutes to get back, not the five he'd planned. How could he have known that the boy wouldn't stay still, frozen in fear? He'd looked into Monty for hours, shouting his son's name, telling him that he wasn't mad. He only wanted to know that he was safe. With no sign of his son, he had to get the nearby town involved, which alerted the media. He was ashamed under the glare of the camera lights and the accusation-laced questions. But he endured it, because the more who knew, the more might come and help look for his son. For the days leading up to the boy's rescue, it was an ominous story, people waiting as the days went by to hear of the little boy being found. So, when the boy was found on the sixth day, the whole world seemed to be watching for a fleeting time. And the weight of that attention was on the boy who'd survived, Manny said, despite his horribly irresponsible parents. For three days after being rescued, the boy didn't speak at all. He was examined by doctors and pathologists and psychiatrists, but surprisingly, there wasn't anything wrong with the boy other than having lost a pound or two. People thought it was a miracle that he survived the cold nights and the hot days in such unforgiving terrain. There were snakes and smugglers and wild dogs roaming the Monte, any of which wouldn't give much thought to hurting a child. When Polo did finally speak, the whole world seemed to be listening. He said that he'd cried and ran into the monte, where he got lost. He followed a path thinking it would get him back to the road, but all it did was lead him deeper into the brush. Scared, he wandered around until nightfall, where he slept under a tree. Somehow he had found a ranch house. The door was unlocked, and though there was no food, there was a working faucet to drink from. Polo said he waited there until he heard the search teams. 
The whole world was sympathetic to his horrible adventure and showed it with a shower of toys and clothes and scholarships. They gave these things thinking that those trinkets and checks would somehow compensate the boy for having terrible parents. The same went for the reporters, praising Polo's bravery while wordlessly calling Domingo and Anna Cristina monsters, but Domingo said nothing. He understood. He understood when news anchors and talk show hosts howled with rage that he and his wife weren't charged with any crime. They cried neglect and abuse, and some attempted murder. They wanted Polo taken away like Domingo was at home waiting with a bullwhip ready to beat the boy to death. For a week, he was the national example for what was wrong with modern parenting and the modern legal system. Petitions were passed around, features on websites devoted to people like Gacy and the Pigman. The world thought he was scum, and every time he looked at his son, saw the way he acted after his week in the Monte alone, Domingo understood why. Polo wasn't the same hyper child. Before the Monte, he was perpetually bored and aggressively sought out solitude. His parents annoyed him and he avoided them at all costs. But after his return, Polo was never out of their sight. Wherever his mother went, he either positioned himself to be able to see her or outright followed her into the rooms. Even when in the bathroom, Domingo and Anna Cristina could see the shadows of Polo's feet under the door. He watched them in silence, whereas only weeks before, any time around his parents was usually filled with obsessive questions or outright complaints. For weeks, his father wanted to sit down and talk to him, not to try to explain himself or justify what he did, but just to listen, to try and help his boy to understand what happened, what he endured. And for as much want for dialogue as Domingo had, he didn't have the strength to actually approach his son and speak. The shame that came from his cowardice, mingled with his guilt over leaving the boy, took a toll on Domingo. Soon, as if trying to atone by reliving the boy's suffering, he ate little and hardly slept. He'd stayed up for hours, the television going, though he wasn't really watching it. Anna Christina kicked him out of the bedroom because the TV light gave her strange dreams. Domingo spent his nights in the living room, eyes open and mind shut inward. Well, I am rather busy. On one such night, flipping through the channels, Domingo heard a whistling between the ebb and the flow of programs. He followed the sound through the darkened house until he reached what he thought was the source. The whistling seemed to come from Polo's room. Domingo stood there a moment, knowing he should investigate but was still too ashamed to brazenly approach his boy. After a moment, he decided to open the door just enough to look inside. Domingo found Polo standing at his open window, looking out into the night and whistling a familiar tune, some theme song to one of his cartoons. Yet, it wasn't the bored notes of a wandering mind. Polo made the sounds with a deliberateness that Domingo was not prepared to hear at that hour. Domingo watched him a minute, the boy whistling half a tune and then waiting before starting again. What are you doing, son? he asked. The suddenness and volume of his voice in the silent house made Domingo cringe, thinking he might frighten the boy again. I'm calling my friend, the bird lady, Polo said, not turning to look at his father. 
Who's the bird lady? Domingo asked from the doorway. She's the one who kept me safe, Polo said, finally looking at his father. She gave me back to you. The next morning, while the boy ate cereal and toast and jam, Anna Christina questioned him about the bird lady. She too felt the guilt from the public scrutiny in her own conscience and tried to broach any subject calmly and without accusation. She sounded nice, she added nervously. I'd like to thank her for helping you. Polo smiled, his mouth still full of cereal. She was real nice, he said. She let me stay with her until you found me. Why didn't she try to find us? Domingo asked softly. I'm sure you told her that we were looking for you. Polo looked at his father with a stare that seemed to scrutinize him beyond what a boy of his age was capable of. But, Dad... I didn't know you were looking for me. Domingo had to look away for a second. When she heard all of the people going through the Monte, she told me to go to them. Polo told them. I told her to come with me, but she told me it was real important that I didn't tell anyone that she helped me. You should have told us, Domingo said quickly, though he shrank away, expecting his son to recoil from his tone. I know, Dad, Polo said the mention of Domingo's title working on the man like pleasant music. But she made me promise not to tell anyone. She made me swear. Anna Christina gave Domingo a look. Why would she do that, honey? She says she doesn't like people. She likes babies and kids, but not people. That's why she only goes out at night. Did... did you find her house? Anna Christina asked. Is that how you met her? She found me, the boy said. It was dark and I was cold and hungry. Each of the words out of his mouth made his parents feel as though weights were being lowered onto their necks. And I was crying and it was dark. Dark. Then she whistled. She whistled, Dog Pound Detectives. I heard it and yelled, but she didn't come. She whistled again, so I whistled back. And then she came and got me. And took me home. Did she tell you her name? Mommy and Daddy, Anna Christina started. She said names are secrets, Polo said. Well, uh, what did she look like? Domingo asked, inwardly berating himself. A little, but... Polo stopped to think a moment. She looked like an old lady with feathers, and they were... Wait! Polo scooted his chair out and went to his room. Anna Christina and Domingo huddled together, debating whether or not to press the boy, whether or not to call the police. I drew a picture of her for when I see her again, the boy announced, bringing a colored sheet of computer paper to the table. See her again? Anna Christina asked, taking the picture. Um, when? She said all I had to do was whistle and she'd hear me, the boy said, beaming, unaware that his mother's face drained of color. I hope she likes it. Anna Christina passed the drawing to Domingo, and it nearly crushed his soul. The drawing was childlike, but Domingo imagined seeing such a person emerge from the monte in the middle of the night. Her stark white hair fell all the way down past her waist and framed an emaciated face comprised of a hawkish nose and jutting cheekbones. Her eyes were too large for her face, 
and for some reason Polo had colored them a golden yellow devoid of pupils. Her clothing seemed to be a jumble of feathers and filth, though Domingo told himself the ghastly features were due only to his son's lack of artistic talent. Do you think she'll like it? Polo asked. She'll love it, Domingo said, only half paying attention as though something of himself was being lost in the crayon yellow eyes. Domingo told the police about what his son had told him, but when they checked on the boy's story, the police said that no one lived on the property. It belonged to a development firm that was sitting on the piece of land until it was profitable to sell it. Any constructions on the land would have been destroyed and anyone living there would have been driven out a decade earlier. At first, the boy's parents weren't sure what to do with that information, but soon Domingo thought the story of the bird lady was only natural. The boy had been alone, lost, surrounded by dirt and thorns. He had been hungry and cold and delirious with fright. In times like that, Domingo felt he could understand the boy pretending there was some grandmotherly figure there to help him survive. But with those thoughts came the visions of his son huddled inches from snakes without tears left to shed, whistling to himself just to hear anything other than the oppressive silence of the monte. So, on those sleepless nights, Domingo excused the whistling. Each note he felt was like a sort of prayer to whatever powers allowed his son to survive. Some nights, Domingo stood outside of the boy's door, listening to the half-tunes the boy sent out his window. He listened to them as though there was something important in those songs, something to be memorized and cherished. One such night, Domingo heard the whistling start up, and he crept to the door to listen to it. The little song started the same as they always did, a few bars followed by silence. He listened for a few minutes, but once the boy whistled for the sixth or seventh time, the boy stopped. After the silence, the boy said, Yay! I knew you'd come. I just had to keep calling. The words wounded Domingo, knowing that the boy's imagination had saved his tiny psyche, not his father. At that moment, Domingo was filled with such a profound paternal instinct, he lost all his fear and hesitation, and wanted his whole being to open the door and embrace his son. Claro, niño. Eh, son amigos, no? Domingo nearly fell when he heard the voice. The words couldn't have been made by his son, no matter how he altered his voice. The person who'd spoken sounded like an ancient woman a speaker of a language the boy hardly knew. Domingo opened the door and was confronted by the maddening din of beaten wings filling the room with a rush of discordant sounds. But in an instant, there was silence. He opened his eyes to see Polo standing at the window, scowling playfully. All around him, black and white feathers drifted to the floor like a light snowfall. Dad, he complained playfully. You scared her away. Domingo wanted to ask who, but landing at his feet, the crayon drawing with large yellow eyes told him the answer. The Halcons took their son back to the state psychologist to talk about the bird lady. But the doctors all said the same thing. The bird lady was a manifestation of the boy's imagination. 
a coping mechanism for the trauma of being left alone in the monte. When questioned about the strange voice, one doctor laughed and said, <laughs> yeah, The vocal cords are remarkable things. They can imitate all kinds of voices, and children have a tendency of playing with voices during their cartoon phases. None of them had answers for the feathers. Domingo had collected them in a plastic bag and showed them to the doctors, some of whom, in their amateur opinions, didn't think they were the type found in pillows. Polo maintained the same story. The feathers, the voice, they were all from the old woman who helped him in the monte. She had only come to visit and see how he was doing now that he was back home. She heard him whistling. How does she get to your room? Anna Christina asked her son. If she lives near the highway, does she drive? Polo thought the idea of the old woman driving was funny. No, Mom. She flies. She's got big wings like a bird and flies to my window. Hearing this, Anna Christina smiled and told Polo to go and play. She looked at her husband and sighed. It's all just in his head. You heard him. Bird ladies flying to his window. It's like the doctor said. Then explain the feathers, Anna, Domingo told her. He could have picked them up out in the yard, Anna Christina said. The Cueva's cat kills pigeons and crows all over the neighborhood. Domingo listened to his wife's explanation and nodded, though he didn't believe a word of it. She hadn't been in the room. She hadn't heard the booming whoosh of titanic wings. But he could find no explanation that could make sense of what he had seen and perhaps all those sleepless nights and weeks of stress confused him. It had been the middle of the night and Domingo hadn't really seen anything. Still, like the guilt of leaving the boy, the thought that all the doctors and his wife were wrong nagged him. Alone, the only light coming from the TV, Domingo couldn't resign himself to believe any of it. He'd been there. But, if it wasn't the boy's brain and his collection of feathers, if the boy told the truth, he'd been saved by an old woman with the wings of a bird. Engrossed in the fantastic idea, Domingo heard his son whistling in his room. At once, he was filled with a mixture of dread and exhaustion. He laughed to himself and rubbed his face. Domingo went up to the boy's door, telling himself that it was how the boy survived, how he dealt with the memories of the elements and the dark. Memories of a shitty father too impatient to do the right thing. No more, he thought. Domingo opened the door and found Polo at his open window. The boy did not seem surprised that his father was there. Hey, son, Domingo said, walking up to the window. You, uh, trying to call the lady again? Uh-huh, Polo said, nodding. You've just got to whistle. If she whistles back, you answer, and she'll come. Domingo smiled to hide the pain that came with the image of his son listening to the dark for a friend that would never come. Can I do it too? he asked. Sure, Polo said, excited. He pulled his father by the arm and set him at the open window. It looked out to their backyard with the cinder block fence hidden in shadow and all the undeveloped land behind it. Go on, Dad, the boy urged. Whistle, anything you want, Polo said, smiling up at him. All right, uh, let me think, Domingo said. Thinking of one, Domingo whistled the tune of an old radio commercial for a Chinese buffet. Hearing it made him smile a bit. 
After a moment of silence, Polo told him to do it again, saying that she never answers after the first time. Domingo whistled again, his ear trained to the night air, but there was nothing. A part of him somehow was disappointed, yet the majority of him told Domingo that it was proof that all this late-night whistling was nothing to worry about. There were stranger ways to cope. As though in affirmation of this, Domingo whistled into the dark again and basked in the silence. Faintly, he heard a bird song. A tune for a Chinese buffet closed for twenty years. Domingo froze at the sound. Again, logic tried to flood his mind, tried to tell him that it was nothing, a strange mingling of the boy's playful imaginings and Domingo's newfound relief. Polo tugged at his father's arm. You've got to answer, Dad, the boy told him. Domingo hesitated. He let out some of the tune and the silence that followed it had a weight, a presence. It was herald to something Domingo felt. He looked out at the dark yard, over at the dark sky, thinking he might see some hint of movement. Nothing. Within seconds, Domingo relaxed, thinking again it was his son's imagination that affected his own. He trained his eyes on the dark to prove it once more to himself. Smiling, he looked down at his son and tussled his hair. Look, there she is. Domingo snapped his head up, and the scream bubbling inside him was caught in his throat. What came out of the shadows did not look human. Shaggy with feathers, it had a hunchback that hid its face in shadow, and it lumbered forward as though it shouldered a great weight. Yet it moved silently, its footfalls unseen beneath the shroud of black feathers. As if sensing Domingo's fright, the thing approaching them let glow its eyes, huge yellow discs that even devoid of pupils, Domingo felt them focus on him. Their light gave the thing's face deep contours, and the wrinkled skin looked like tattoos carved by uncaring hands. Domingo got a hold of his son, shut the window, and walked backwards slowly, keeping his eyes on the dark outside. Never had the boy's room, or any room for that matter, felt so vast to him than in that moment. Still, Domingo didn't run, didn't shout, Somehow, he thought, doing so would spark an outrage within that figure creeping towards their home. As his back bumped against the door, the figure appeared at the window. All dark hunchback and bright yellow eyes, the figure's face glowed against the glass. It smiled wide, revealing a toothless mouth. Up came its hand, its palm and fingers human, but the nails were the talons of a bird. The figure tapped on the window, calling, Niño, abra la ventana. Por favor, mijo. The boy tried to pull away from his father, but Domingo wouldn't let him go. Dad, he whined. She wants to come inside. She's my friend. Please let her in. Be quiet, Domingo hissed, grabbing the boy tighter. Go to your mother. Tell her to call the police. But, Dad... Don't argue with me, Domingo barked. Now go! 
The boy's struggle ceased and deflated. He sighed and slowly went to the hall. Alone in the boy's room, Domingo stared at the withered face, which still smiled with an unwavering consistency at him. Meeting eyes with it, Domingo had to fight to get even the fewest words out. Leave, he told it. This is my house. He is my son. Leave us alone. The figure put a second claw against the glass, scratching at it slowly. Get away from here, Domingo shouted. The bluster in his voice sounded forced and pathetic. You're not wanted here. You... Stay away from us, Domingo wanted to say. But as the words formed on his tongue, that slow figure outside his window crashed through the glass. Domingo shouted, throwing up his hands in some vain attempt to defend himself. Great wings battered his head and body and the maelstrom of motion confused and frightened him. He felt his fists connect against the feathered body of what felt like solid mesquite. But despite the crunches of his fingers and knuckles, Domingo didn't dare relent. In an instant, Domingo felt those taloned fingers hook into his shoulders, the wounds immediately searing with pain. His body locked as he screamed, and as suddenly as he had been caught, Domingo was pulled off his feet with such a force, he thought he had been ripped in half. He was still intact though, no longer in his son's room. Domingo was flying up into the night sky, blood dripping on the land rushing by below him, serenaded by the hacking laughter of an old woman with the wings of a bird. The police arrived and searched the house. Domingo Halcon was gone. Polo's room was a mess of broken furniture and shards of glass and blood. Again, Domingo was in the news, except now he was missing. Search parties were formed, posters and flyers printed. A week later, animal control was called. Vultures were picking at something large and stinking by the highway. What they found was a body, shattered and mangled, and a small crater of its own making. The coroner examined it. The wallet retrieved had Domingo Halcon's driver's license in it and found that the injuries were consistent with a fall from over 50 feet, though there was no structure of that height within miles of the body and, as far as the police could tell, no planes passed over that area. The coroner noted that the eyes, the tongue, and some teeth were missing, but they wrote it off as results of vultures. You've been listening to A Whistle in the Dark by author Mario E. Martinez. A good reminder that fathers aren't perfect, 
But between these two stories, you get a really good sense of both the gravity and import of the father figure. It ain't an easy job, folks, and you're bound to miss the mark from time to time. But done well, there's just no substitute for it. Hats off to Mario. Honest writing always has its reasons. Here's a little about the author. Mario E. Martinez is a writer from South Texas. He's written two short story collections, San Casimiro, Texas, and A Pig Named Orinius, and other strange tales. He also has a horror novel, Ash Tree. And he just released a wild new book called Neo Laredo, which I hope you'll check out. Well, here's the gist of it. Corre Camino and his friends just want to tag the infamous wall, the one King Gringo built along the border. But instead, they're kidnapped and forced to help a bunch of Americanos escape Neo Laredo. It's an easy job, unless the murderous gangsters, vicious merometos, or team of psychic super soldiers get them first. Amigos, don't sleep on our pal Mario. You can find him on Facebook at the Mario E. Martinez or Mario E. Martinez-Author. His Twitter is at MarioMartinez39. His Instagram is at Mario E. Martinez Jr. And his website is www.MarioEMartinez.com. To hear a premium ad-free edition of tonight's and all our other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu. You'll find yourself at ChillinTalesForDarkNights.com, where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month, and you'll get access to our entire audio archive dating all the way back to 2012, including past episodes of this program and all our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free and available to download or stream. Thanks for your time and for supporting our sponsors. When you support our sponsors, you help support this show. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chillin' Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You'll find me personally on Facebook, Twitter, as well as Instagram. Come on by and say hi, y'all. I won't bite you. Much? I'd also like to mention that we are accepting submissions. If you've got a story or two you'd like to be featured on this show, send it to drewbloodhorror at gmail.com. If selected, we'll meet in the desert under the dark of night. You'll hand me the briefcase, and I'll read the contents on the show. No funny business. And come alone. If there's anyone else there, I'll know. Well... I'm afraid this is where we part ways, friend. At least till next week. So grab a drink for the road. And if you see any alligator shit, try not to run over it. First of all, my old microphone might be in there. Second, Chester might be nearby looking for another snack. So until then, friend, may your days be many and your troubles be few. May all God's blessings descend upon you. May peace be within you. May your heart be strong. May you find what you're seeking wherever you roam. And remember, above all, to go fuck yourself. (laughs) Happy New Year, y'all.
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.